Section 34 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 3 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 45 Palmerston's Last Victory, Part 1. During the later months of his life, the Prince Consort had been busy in preparing for another great international exhibition to be held in London. It was arranged that this exhibition should open on May 1, 1862, and although the sudden death of the Prince Consort greatly interfered with the prospects of the undertaking, it was not thought right that there should be any postponement of the opening. The exhibition was erected in South Kensington according to the design of General Folk. It certainly was not a beautiful structure. None of the novel charm which attached to the bright exterior of the Crystal Palace could be found in the South Kensington building. It was a huge and solid erection of brick, with two enormous domes, each in shape so strikingly like the famous crinoline petticoat of the period, that people amused themselves by suggesting that the principal idea of the architect was to perpetuate for posterity the shape and structure of the Empress Eugenie's invention. The fine arts department of the exhibition was a splendid collection of pictures and statues. The display of products of all kinds from the colonies was rich and was a novelty, for the colonists contributed little indeed to the exhibition of 1851, and the intervening eleven years had been a period of immense colonial advance. But the public did not enter with much heart into the enterprise of 1862. No one felt any longer any of the hopes which floated dreamily and gracefully round the scheme of 1851. There was no talk or thought of a reign of peace any more. The civil war was raging in America. The continent of Europe was trembling all over with the spasms of war just done and the premonitory symptoms of war to come. The exhibition of 1862 had to rely upon its intrinsic merits, like any ordinary show or any public market. Poetry and prophecy had nothing to say to it. England was left for some time to an almost absolute inactivity. As regards measures of political legislation, after the failure of the Reform Bill it was quite understood, as we have already said, that there was to be no more of reform while Lord Palmerston lived. At one of his elections for Tiverton, Lord Palmerston was attacked by a familiar antagonist, a sturdy, radical butcher, and asked to explain why he did not bring in another reform bill. The answer was characteristic. Why do we not bring in another reform bill? Because we are not geese. Lord Palmerston was heartily glad to be rid of schemes in which he had neither belief nor sympathy, and his absence of political foresight in home affairs made him satisfied that the whole question of reform was quietly shelved for another generation. It is not perhaps surprising that a busy statesman whose intellect was mostly exercised on questions of foreign policy should have come to this conclusion when cool critics on public affairs were ready to adopt with complacency a similar faith. The Quarterly Review said in 1863, Reform is no longer talked of now. Mr. Bright has almost ceased to excite antipathy. Our statesmen, it went on to say with portentous gravity, have awakened to the fact 
that the imagined reform agitation was nothing but an intrigue among themselves and that the nation was far too sensible to desire any further approximation to the government of the multitude lord palmerston was free to indulge in his taste for foreign politics between palmerston and the radical party in england there was a growing coldness he had not only thrown over reform himself but he had apparently induced most of his colleagues to accept the understanding that nothing more was to be said about it he had gone in for a policy of large expenditure for the purpose of securing the country against the possibility of invasion he had lent himself openly to the propagation of what his adversaries called not very unreasonably the scare that was got up about napoleonic invasion when drawn into argument by mr cobden on the subject lord palmerston had betrayed a warmth of manner that was almost offensive and had spoken of the commercial treaty with france as if it were a thing rather ridiculous than otherwise he was unsparing whenever he had a chance in his ridicule of the ballot he had very little sympathy with the grievances of the nonconformists some of them even still real and substantial enough he took no manner of interest in anything proposed for the political benefit of ireland although an irish landlord an irish peer and occasionally speaking of himself in a half jocular way as an irishman he could not be brought even to affect any sympathy with any of the complaints made by the representatives of that country he scoffed at all proposals about tenant right tenant right he once said is landlord's wrong and he was cheered for saying this by the landlords on both sides of the house of commons and he evidently thought he had settled the question he was indeed impatient of all views and he regarded what is called philosophic statesmanship with absolute contempt the truth is that palmerston ceased to be a statesman the moment he came to deal with domestic interests when actually in the home office and compelled to turn his attention to the business of that department he proved a very efficient administrator because of his shrewdness and his energy but as a rule he had not much to do with english political affairs and he knew little or nothing of them he was even childishly ignorant of many things which any ordinary public man is supposed to know he was at home in foreign that is in continental politics for he had hardly any knowledge of american affairs and almost up to the moment of the fall of richmond was confident that the union never could be restored and that separation was the easy and natural way of settling all the dispute he gave a pension to an absurd and obscure writer of doggerel and when a question was raised about this singular piece of patronage in the house of commons it turned out that lord palmerston knew nothing about the man but had got it into his head somehow that he was a poet of the class of burns when he read anything except dispatches he read scientific treatises for he had a keen interest in some branches of science but he cared little for modern english literature the world in which he delighted to mingle talked of continental politics generally and a great knowledge of english domestic affairs would have been thrown away there 
naturally therefore when lord palmerston had nothing particular to do in foreign affairs and had to turn his attention to england he relished the idea of fortifying her against foreign foes this was foreign politics seen from another point of view it had far more interest for him than reform or tenant right there were however some evidences of a certain difference of opinion between lord palmerston and some of his colleagues as well as between him and the radical party his constant activity in foreign politics pleased some of his cabinet as little as it pleased the advanced liberals his vast fortification schemes and his willingness to spend money on any project that tended toward war or what seemed much the same thing on any elaborate preparation against problematical war was not congenial with the temperament and the judgment of some members of his administration lord palmerston acted sincerely on the opinion which he expressed in a short letter to mr cobden that man is a fighting and quarrelling animal assuming it to be the nature of man to fight and quarrel he could see no better business for english statesmanship than to keep this country always in a condition to resist a possible attack from somebody he differed almost radically on this point from two at least of his more important colleagues mr gladstone and mr george cornwall lewis mr evelyn ashley in his life of lord palmerston has published some interesting letters that passed between palmerston and these statesmen on this general subject palmerston wrote to sir george lewis on november twenty second eighteen sixty arguing against something lewis had said and which palmerston hopes was only a conversational paradox and not a deliberately adopted theory this was a dissent on the part of lewis from the maxim that in statesmanship prevention is better than cure each had clearly in his mind the prevention which would take security against the perils of war lord palmerston therefore goes on at once in his letter to show that in many cases the timely adoption of spirited measures by an english government would have actually prevented war lewis argues that if an evil is certain and proximate and can be averted by diplomacy then undoubtedly prevention is better than cure but if the evil is remote and uncertain then i think it better not to resort to preventive measures which ensure a proximate and certain mischief the purpose of the discussion is made more clear in lewis's concluding sentence it seems to me that our foreign relations are on too vast a scale to render it wise for us to insure systematically against all risks and if we do not insure systematically we do nothing on april twenty ninth eighteen sixty two lord palmerston writes to mr gladstone about a speech that the latter had just been making in manchester and in which as lord palmerston puts it mr gladstone seems to make it a reproach to the nation at large that it has forced as you say it has on the parliament and the government the high amount of expenditure which we have at present to provide for palmerston does not quite agree with mr gladstone as to the fact but admitting it to be as you state it seems to me to be rather a proof of the superior sagacity of the nation than a subject for reproach lord palmerston goes on to argue that the country so far from having as cobden had accused it of doing rushed headlong into extravagance under the influence of panic had simply awakened from a lethargy 
got rid of an apathetic blindness on the part of the governed and the governors as to the defensive means of the country compared with the offensive means required and acquiring by other powers we have on the other side of the channel a people who say what they may hate us as a nation from the bottom of their hearts and would make any sacrifice to inflict a deep humiliation upon england it is natural that this should be so they are eminently vain and their passion is glory in war they cannot forget or forgive abukir trafalgar the peninsula waterloo and st helena well then at the head of this neighbouring nation who would like nothing so well as a retaliatory blow upon england we see an able active wary counsel-keeping but ever planning sovereign and we see this sovereign organizing an army which including his reserve is more than six times greater in amount than the whole of our regular forces in our two islands and at the same time laboring hard to create a navy equal if not superior to ours give him a cause of quarrel which any foreign power may at any time invent or create if so minded give him the command of the channel which permanent or accidental naval superiority might afford him and then calculate if you can for it would pass my reckoning power to do so the disastrous consequences to the british nation which a landing of an army of from one to two hundred thousand men would bring with it surely even a large yearly expenditure for army and navy is an economical insurance against such a catastrophe the reader will perhaps be reminded of one of the most effective arguments of demosthenes consider he says what even a few days of the occupation of the country by a foreign enemy would mean and then say whether as a mere matter of economy it would not be better to spend a good deal of the resources we have in striving to avert such a calamity there is a great difference however in the purpose and the application of the two arguments demosthenes puts the case in a way that is from its point of view perfect he is speaking of a danger that lies at the gates of an enemy who must be encountered one way or another and he is pleading for instant and offensive war it is a very different thing to argue for enormous expenditure on the ground that somebody who is now professing the most peaceful intentions may possibly one day become your enemy and try to attack you in such a case the first thing to be considered is whether the danger is real and likely to be imminent or whether it is merely speculative even against speculative dangers a wise people will always take precautions but it is no part of wisdom to spend in guarding against such perils as much as would be needed to enable us actually to speak with the enemy at the gate it is a question of proportion and comparison as sir george lewis argues it is not possible for a nation like england to secure herself against all speculative dangers france might invade us from boulogne or cherbourg no doubt but the united states might at the same time assail us in canada russia might attack as she once thought of doing our australian possessions or make an onslaught upon us in asia germany might be in alliance with russia austria might at the same time be in alliance with france these are all possibilities they might all come to pass at one and the same time 
but how could any state keep fleets and armies capable of ensuring her against serious peril from such a combination it would be better to make up our minds to wait until the assault really threatened and then fight it out the best way we could lord palmerston seemed to forget that in the campaign against russia it did not prove easy for france to send out an army very much smaller than his one or two hundred thousand men and that louis napoleon was glad to finish up prematurely his campaign in lombardy even though he had won in every battle he had also made the mistake of assuming that all these military and naval insurances must insure if he had lived to eighteen seventy he would have seen that a sovereign may engage himself for years in the preparing of an immense armament that it may be the armament of a people eminently vain whose passion is glory in war and yet that the armament may turn out a vast failure and may prove at the hour of need a defence like rodomonte's bridge in ariosto which only conducts its owner to ignominious upset and fall all the resources of france were strained for years and by one who could do as he pleased for the single purpose of creating a great overmastering army and when the time came to test the army it proved to be little better than what prince bismarck called a crowd of fighting persons this is surely a matter to be taken account of when we are thinking of going to vast annual expense for the purpose of maintaining a great armament we may go to all the expense and yet not have the armament when we fancy we have need of it that lord palmerston would doubtless have said is a risk we must run mr gladstone and sir george lewis would no doubt have thought problematic invasion a risk more safe to run that had been the view of sir robert peel whatever may be thought of the merits of the argument on either side and the decision will be made more often probably by temperament than by reasoning the controversy will serve to illustrate the sort of difference that was gradually growing up between lord palmerston and some of his own colleagues lord palmerston had of late fallen again into a policy of suspicion and distrust as regards france we are convinced that he was perfectly sincere and as has been said already in these pages we do not think there was any inconsistency in his conduct he had for a long time believed in the good faith of the emperor of the french but the policy of the lombardy campaign and the consequent annexation of savoy and nice had come to him as a complete surprise and when he found that his friend louis napoleon could keep such secrets from him he possibly came to the conclusion that he could keep others still more important lord palmerston made england his idol he loved her in a pagan way he did not much care for abstract justice where she was concerned he was unscrupulous where he believed her interests were to be guarded nor had he any other than a purely pagan view of her interests it did not seem to have occurred to him that england's truest interest would be to do justice to herself and to other states to be what voltaire's brahmin boasts of being a good parent and a faithful friend maintaining well her own children and endeavouring for peace among her neighbours palmerston's idea was that england 
should hold the commanding place among european states and that none should even seem to be in a position to do her scathe End of section thirty four